Hello and welcome to the October 25th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Romy Kukratsky and with me is my colleague, Anthony Bartley. Uh, we have uh, quite a bit of news to go through today, but before we get into it, uh, Anthony, you recently uh, took a trip to Kharkiv and the Dnipro River area. Um, what was it like and what's the situation like out there? Yeah, um, it wasn't as eventful of a trip as some of my others. Um, there was talk of possibly getting to the front line from Kharkiv, but that didn't quite pan out. Permissions are always very complicated, but I was able to accomplish some things in Kharkiv. Um, Interview-wise, that will turn into a few articles, maybe episodes down the line, uh, especially one regarding military chaplains. So keep keep your ears up for that. Uh, it was actually my first time in Kharkiv. I've never been there before. It is the second largest city in the country, but I just never found time or a reason to go, I suppose. Um, uh, it's it's quite nice. I enjoyed it. Uh, the especially like the center of town is pretty well preserved. Uh, I headed to the synagogue, which is I guess the largest synagogue in Europe, depending on how you measure it. Maybe Budapest sometimes says they have the biggest. I'm not these these things are always uh, under argument, but possibly the largest synagogue in Europe. There went there, intimidatingly large actually, and. Uh, think I mentioned in two episodes ago that it did get some damage recently from a rocket attack on Perkiv city center, but that had all been cleared up by then. Uh, although the day after I left Kharkiv was when the Nova Poshta warehouse sorting center, something like that was hit. Um, about a half dozen people were killed. Uh, Nova Posta, New Post, it's a private uh, post postal company, like a UPS, something along those lines. But far, far more efficient and um, customer service friendly. Yeah, much more efficient. They have a good union, but they are very, very vital for also taking things around the country uh, they have opened up a few offices in neighboring European countries, Estonia, uh, Poland, I think as far away as from Germany, so that refugees could have uh, pretty inexpensive and efficient and fast way of sending things back and forth with Ukraine. So it's a very much beloved company. And so this sorting center in Kharkiv, which is, of course, a very busy sorting center, was hit at night the day after I left. Half dozen died. And it's like the, the company released video saying we're not, you know, a military target. The Russians always say that everything's a military target. I think they said that it was that center was being used to send military equipment or it's, as always, it's. It's just stupid, stupid things that the Russians say to justify war crimes. Uh, so that was very shocking to see as I was leaving. Um, from there, passed through the city of Dnipro, back to the shores of the former Kokovka Reservoir. Um, I was doing this with the German documentary crew that I was with last time. We wanted to do some follow-up in the area. Turned out we didn't have the appropriate permissions. Last time we didn't need these permissions. This time we did. Saying when what can be shot and where can get complicated as you get closer to the front line. Uh, turned out this time we did not, so we did not get all the material that we wanted. Oh, well. Uh, 
I'll just have to contact the local civil military administration before I go down there next time, because I do want to do some more follow-up on this, uh, a few different reservoir stories. I uh, went through a few historical areas there, though. I was able to see the grave of Ivan Sirko. Uh, Sirko is a very famous Cossack leader. Uh, if you know the reply of the Zaporizhian Cossacks, where the Ottoman Sultan sent a letter to the Cossacks saying surrender with all these fancy titles and the Cossacks replying uh, this a very elaborate mix of insults. It's a very famous thing. There's a painting of it that is constantly being duplicated as like a political statement. And that's where he's buried is the the area around Nikopol. But again, as this is a very hot area, it's very close to the front line. The river itself is the front line. Uh, the day that we were there, a few hours after we left, there was a fisherman down by the water who was killed by Russian artillery shelling, uh, possibly while we were still in the area. There is pretty much constant shelling going back and forth there uh, between the two banks of the Dnipro River. So it is often that buildings are destroyed in the Nikopol area. In this case, it was a fisherman down by the water. The The photo of this is quite um, quite gruesome as well. The, the fisherman, of course, lying on the shore of the water and then around him, a bunch of dead fish from the the shock of the artillery shell within the area. But that is the reality of life on the front line. Uh, these people continue with normalcy often, but it's constantly shrouded in death. Although there was one bright moment here in that when we were filming at the grave of Ivan Zirko, uh, this farmer came up. This farmer was, he said he was from Donetsk. Uh, but he insisted on speaking Ukrainian, which I found interesting. Tried to uh, say some words in Russian because my Russian's a bit stronger than my Ukrainian, though neither are particularly strong. And he's like, no, 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 I speak Ukrainian. His Ukrainian was a bit shaky, but but I, I just thought that was interesting that someone, a refugee from Donetsk, uh, was making this conscious choice, as many others had, to switch over to Ukrainian language. And, you know, I was very excited that people were were there like, you know, taking photos and telling the story of the area. And he forced me to take some dried fish from him. So um, I'll need to get some kind of alcohol or something to go with that dried fish because it is very salty, but tasty. Cause I think you're supposed to be having that with alcohol. Yeah. Dried fish is for dried fish is for like beer and vodka. Also tried to force potatoes and other things on me, but like I had to go. But I, it was a, it was a good interaction. It's like you know, thank you for being here. Glory to Ukraine, etc. Those are the things that really keep you going. But yeah, other than that, it was a shorter trip than usual, a little bit less eventful than usual. But I still gained some things from it. Just unfortunately, no full story. Just you no know, piecing together stories otherwise in production. Uh, but with that, I think we can now talk about the combat update. And these last two weeks, things are really moving. Um, the Zaporizhia offensive, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, it's kind of shaky whether it has culminated or not. We are getting into the colder months, but apparently there things are still the momentum is still on the Ukrainian side. No one's calling it a culmination yet. 
Um, but we'll have to maybe settle with the idea that it might not get much further. Uh, it may, may not, but we're looking at a new phase of the war here that we have to take into account some of the new realities that have developed in the course of the last two weeks. And the most important of these is the Russian offensive at Evdivka. Evdivka is essentially a suburb of Donetsk, immediately north of Donetsk Airport. Uh, We've been covering it over and over again. It is very much a fortress city, and really, it's kind of jutting into the Russian lines right now. It has been semi-encircled for well over a year at this point, though the Ukrainians had recently pushed the Russians back in some places, especially to the south of the city. But within these last two weeks, the Russians have organized an extensive attack here. Um, in some of our predictions predictions of what could happen next, uh, we have said that the most obvious place for a Russian offensive would be Avdivka. This isn't some brilliant insight we had. It was pretty obvious to everyone involved that Avdivka, due to its position, due to its closeness to Donetsk, due to its uh, vulnerability, uh, and just because there aren't a whole lot of other obvious targets along the front line for the Russians, that if they are going to have an offensive, it would be here. Well, they've organized many divisions. This is currently the largest Russian attack since Bakhmut. And so far, they have not had large gains. They have not, they, they haven't really done much to the south of the city. To the north of the city, they have uh, retaken the positions that Ukraine pushed them out of a couple months ago, over, well, over the last few months in different phases. And right now, there is a battle over what's called the slag heap. It is probably just as gross as the name implies. The, it's just a mountain of industrial waste. It's a mountain of industrial waste, exactly. The main industry in Evdivka is uh, is a coke plant. It's a way of processing coal, uh, mainly in use in uh, metallurgy. And this is a very heavy, heavy industry that produces a lot of pollutants. And the industrial waste from this massive factory goes to this slag heap. It is the high ground around the city, so if the Russians are able to take it, then they will have a commanding height. But at the same time, there's no cover on this hill whatsoever. It is just a landfill of gross coal industrial byproduct, which also makes me think that anyone fighting on this slag heap will probably get cancer as the various particulates from the slag heap gets cooked up into their lungs. So the war will not end when it's over. Yeah, this isn't an especially healthy place to be in peacetime. And when they're artillery and drone strikes spreading uh, particulates into the air that's not helping the situation exactly um there was some video yesterday i believe tuesday of uh the russians planting their flag on top of the slag heap there was some discussion that they had taken the whole hill but there has been information since then that no it's still a gray zone that's being fought over back and forth and this the the flag itself has already been blown up. So that is where the most active fighting is happening, though it is happening also all around the city as well. And speaking of Bakhmut, the casualties that Russia has been taking in the uh, assault on Evdivka have taken on headlines for just how high they've been. 
in the height of the fighting over Bakhmut, in the worst of the Russian human wave attacks, they were at times taking a thousand casualties a day. Uh, Not specifically in Bakhmut on the entire front, but mostly the spike happened because of Bakhmut. And those are the numbers that we're seeing now. You look at the casualty counts, it's no 1,800, and these numbers are not exactly reliable, but from what we have seen in the video, they are quite believable. At the very least, they're representative of the just mass scale of casualties that the Russians are taking. Precisely. You see these videos, the, the Russians are attacking seemingly in groups of 80 or so backed up by tanks and armored vehicles and then just getting shredded apart by artillery, by drones. They are throwing everything they have at Avdivka right now, and they are very much paying the price for it. Except unlike Bakhmut, Bakhmut was mainly infantry. In Avdivka, they are using, again, these tanks and armored vehicles. They're also being destroyed at extremely high numbers. Uh, I believe most recently I saw as many two, as 200 combat vehicles. And over time, those things are going to accumulate into obstacles of their own. The Russians are kind of creating a wall of you know, tank hulks that could prevent their advance in the future, is from what I'm guessing from looking at these videos, looking at the battlefield right now, is just being littered with wrecks, with corpses. It is very, very big. What do you think is behind the Russians' um, kind of uh, attempts to take Avdivka? I mean, yes, it is a strategic point, but they've put a lot more effort into this one um, battle than anywhere else on the front, including in Kherson, um, which we'll get to in a moment. But what, what exactly is driving this Russian motivation to take Avdivka? Well, first of all, propaganda-wise... Um, the Russians had been saying that, you know, the, the Ukrainians have been bombing Donbass for eight years and all that. Well, they've been saying it happened from Avdivka. Um, Avdivka, like I said, is perched right next to Donetsk City. So they can say that by taking Avdivka, they have finally secured the safety of the people of Donetsk City, though that means basically nothing at this point. Uh, there was some rumor that um, they were ordered to take the city for Putin's birthday, which was on October 7th. It was supposed to be a birthday gift or whatever, and they were told to just storm storm the city over and over again to have that propaganda win. They're also looking at the so-called elections next year. The presidential elections in Russia will be in March. Um I mean, they don't actually mean anything. I don't think anyone, even inside Russia, is under any kind of uh, delusion that these are real democratic uh, competitive elections, but they have always served a very important propaganda purpose within Russia, uh, where people have to believe that everyone is supporting Putin anyway. And so they need some kind of win before then. Uh, they... Uh, they have not scored any victories since Bakhmut, and ultimately Bakhmut never meant that much to the Russian imagination anyway. It was a, well, these are both smaller places, Evdivka probably smaller than Bakhmut is my guess, but the amount that Evdivka has taken up in Russian propaganda is far larger than Bakhmut, so it would be a larger propaganda win for them than the other. 
a lot of men to die for dictator's ego, though I suppose we can say that of this entire fucking war. Yeah, of course. And if even if you look at some of the units that are being used around Avdivka, uh, especially the assaults to the south, which are around much more open territory as opposed to the slag heap, um, the Russians are using the the Storm Z units. These are the prisoner the prisoner units that, without Wagner in the picture anymore, this was kind of the replacement for that system where you know the scum of society are dragged out of prison, handed a rifle, and say go attack. So we get that echo of Bakhmut as well, except now under the formal control of the Russian Ministry of Defense rather than a PMC, though. Apparently, some of the reconstituted elements of Wagner are also fighting at Evdivka right now, though without their command, without their um, favored position in the logistics chain, they are they're not real. They're not really Wagner. They're probably they're veterans of Wagner, but Wagner itself doesn't exist in any meaningful capacity anymore. So there have been some recovered Wagner flags, but. I don't let's not hype that up as like, you know, the return of the Wagner forces when all their leadership is dead, especially with the Storm Z units. Um, it really seems that uh, the Russian government has just decided to uh, mimic Wagner's tactics, but without any of the actual motivation that Wagner provided to its mercenaries. Uh, there is no increased financial compensation. Um, everyone should be aware now that the uh, stories of pardons are a lie. There have been multiple reports of um, survivors of these um, penal battalions basically coming back to uh, Russia and then immediately being rearrested. Um, or forced to sign contracts for the army afterwards anyway. Or forced to, to sign even longer contracts, uh, pretty much serving out their term. <laughs> on in these penal battalions um and they are still treated uh by the logistics corps as shit they are reportedly according to um witness accounts uh from these units they are uh their commanders legitimately don't care even more than they don't already care the commanders are purposefully trying to kill these men. Um, they are not issued ammunition. They're not issued radios. Um, they're given two clips and a rifle uh, in one case and told to basically run towards a point. And then when they die to to wait for someone to go run towards that point and also die. So it's it's uh, uh, if I was a Russian prisoner, I would think twice before signing up, um, though. Uh, you may not even have a choice, as there are also reports of um, Russian prison wardens and prison authorities, uh, again, forcing prisoners to sign up uh, for the penal battalions, even if they don't want to. So just a great, a great system for winning wars right there is using uh, unmotivated or negatively motivated uh, men to run towards artillery positions and perish. Yes. On the other hand, though, there has been a bit too much triumphalism here. Russia has shown that it is capable of climbing over a pile of corpses to eventually take a position. So there has been talk of like an operational pause in Evdivka, which was plainly untrue because the day that happened, they uh, stepped forward another couple meters. Um, it's still very early in this attack. And though, again, Russians are taking all these very heavy casualties and in including equipment, which is much harder to replace than people on their end, 
it's still early and Avdivka is still very vulnerable. Like I said, it's it's very far from other battle zones, so it's hard to shift things uh, very quickly. It is semi-encircled. Uh, the fighting is over the railroad line right now. There is only one paved road into the city that is safe, though there are still you know back country back roads they can take as well. The salient is not as daunting as it was with Bakhmut. The defenses there are much more uh, built up and longer term. I am not going to be overly pessimistic about Evdivka, but it, it is going to be a tricky fight. We can mock the Russians for, for dying en masse as much as they do, but... It is a very troubling fight where they have the weight of numbers and an advantage in position. So be concerned about Evdivka going forward is all. Um, another development right now is another Ukrainian fence, another Ukrainian offensive in what's being called the River War. Um, we've had multiple episodes about this one as well where Ukrainian special forces are crossing the Dnipro River in the area of Kherson city and north and south of the river there. And lots of raiding, lots of taking over islands, but it seems as though this might be the largest beachhead yet. Uh, they seem to have proceeded further into Russian-controlled territory than they have in the past, but due to the very secretive special forces nature of this Dnipro River War, we just don't have much information. And a lot of the information out there is highly speculative. So all I can say is, it seems like this is the biggest attack on the east bank of the Dnipro River thus far, but that's all we can really say. And my last combat update here has to do with the arrival of the uh, Attackums missiles. We have discussed their arrival, I believe. I think we talked about this uh, two episodes ago, the arrival of the Atakums missiles. Well, on October 17th, they were used for the first time uh, to destroy an airfield at Berdansk. Berdansk being the closest city to Mariupol, I'd say, on the coast of the Azov Sea. It's a major uh, staging area for Russian forces on the southern front because it does have an operating port, though the port has been attacked in the past. This attack on the Berdansk airfield destroyed uh, nine helicopters with another 15 damaged. And this was probably the largest attack on the Russian Air Force in modern times. This was a potential loss of, I believe, 6% of their operating helicopter fleet in the area, I think is the number I saw. This was a very significant blow to their aerial capabilities. Very significant, and they are relying on those attack helicopters um, to both, well, Evdivka obviously would be supplied from this area, but also to supply the defenses in the Zaporizhia Ukrainian counteroffensive as well. So these are two operating areas they'd mostly be using, and they're now down uh, quite a lot of air power. Uh, meanwhile, there is a simultaneous attack in Luhansk that destroyed five helicopters. Um, I, I believe these numbers are part all total at 6%. Um, this was, of course, a very serious strike against the Russians, um, that very serious uh, reduction in their air power. But they are also a reminder that Ukraine didn't get quite what it wanted. 
So the missile used here was a version of the Atakums that's a bit older, a bit shorter range, and works as a cluster munition. So I believe they are technically expired by the um, U.S. calculation. Not the best version of this missile. It's the best ver- type of version of this missile for what was used here. Uh, if you can shred apart a helicopter, then it it needs it's they're not going to be very airworthy if it has a bunch of holes in it. But what we really want the attackums for is to destroy the Crimea Bridge, and this is just not the kind of munition you would use for that. We need the longer range, high explosive version, not the shorter range cluster munition version. And that is also the type needed to strike um, Russian logistics centers within um, the Russian Federation itself, which has also been one of the big asks from the Ukrainian military is a to have permission, basically, from uh, Western authorities to be able to use Western weapons to strike within Russian territory and B to be given these long range, high explosive cruise missiles to actually be able to do damage. Um, to to these logistic centers, railway hubs, and um, arms factories. Yeah, so hold out hope for the more relevant version of the missile, but Ukraine really made do with the inferior version and used it exactly in the best way that it could be used, which was very devastating for the Russian side. Although I will say that it seems like Ukraine has had these Attackums missiles for longer than anyone knew. Um, it seems like the Ukrainian and U.S. governments kind of kept it hush-hush for giving the giving time for the Atakums to be deployed and before the Russians could counter them in some way. I also want to note that it's been officially reported that uh, the U.S. has only transferred 20 of these Atakum missiles to Ukraine. Um, for our listeners, I want to clarify that that number is fake. Um, the actual number will be classified and will likely be as needed. Um, there is no set number of missiles that Ukraine has gotten. And after it's used those, it has to wait for a next batch. That's um, not how these things work. Uh, just like we were waiting so long and everyone's where are the attackums. Well, they were in country for a while. It turns out um, the same thing is going to be with the quantity of missiles provided. They're definitely not 20. Um, they are going to be as much as the DOD feels is necessary to send. Our next topic is more domestic and we'll have to go back in time to Maidan itself. So what happened now is that on October 18th was the closure of a trial of five Kiev police officers who were involved in the suppression of the Maidan, including uh, shooting many of the Maidan protesters, leading to the overthrow of the government and everything that you see now. So these police officers are Alexander Marenchenko, Sergei Temtura, Ola Yanishevsky, Sergei Zinchenko, and Vyacheslav Abroskin. This trial has been highly political, highly covered since 2016. The method of gathering evidence against them has been very difficult. Um, on the less conspiracy-minded side, it was very hard to tell which police officer shot who because they're all wearing masks. So it could have been anyone in a lot of cases. That is why a police officer does not identify themselves in these cases because you could, it's very hard to tie an individual homicide to an individual murderer in these cases. So that is the, the technical reason why it has been so difficult. 
The more conspiracy-minded side is that, well, a lot of the people in the Kiev police were really covering their asses here. Um, there has been complaints all these years that the investigation into the Maidan killers has been politically hamstrung, uh, weakened from the inside. Other police officers who were um, who were involved in the in the Maidan massacres, but had no direct uh, crimes attributed to them, may have lost their job, but were given them back due to various um, basically labor law. You can't fire someone without reason, and even though we all know why they should have been fired, it wasn't good enough. It's all been very complicated and fraught, including in 2019 when there was a prisoner exchange. All five of these police officers were exchanged with Russia to get some of Russia's prisoners back um, in the Donbass war. Of them, three of them left the country, two of them stayed, which meant that Temtura and Marichenko remained in Ukraine while the others all went to Russia. So the ones who went to Russia are the ones who received actually strict sentencing, either life sentences or 15 years, while the ones who stayed in Ukraine uh, Temtura was acquitted, and Marinchenko received a five-year suspended sentence. He was given five years in prison, but because he had always already been in jail for the duration of this trial, five years, you served your time already, he was let go. So it seems quite obvious the two that remained in Ukraine knew ahead of time that nothing bad would happen to them and did not feel the need to leave with their comrades to Russia. They knew ahead of time. It's quite obvious. Maidan obviously was a very large trauma for Ukrainian civil society, but also a accelerant and a spark of inspiration. But this, this, this case of um, the killers of so many protesters walking free, or as um, Anthony just mentioned, getting the slap on the wrist, will likely continue to be a thorn in the side of any government. Um, when Zelensky uh, came um, into office. Uh, one of his first uh, priorities with then Prosecutor General um, Ruslan Robeshapka was to uh, tie up the Maidan cases. He wanted it done as quickly as possible. Um, but then he was kind of forced back. Uh, Robeshapka was replaced. According to interviews at the time when Robeshapka was replaced, um, he said that he had encountered resistance um, from uh, within the government to pursuing the Maidan cases despite a direct uh, order to do so by the president. And it's likely that these kind of half measures, like, yes, these guys are finally sentenced, um, but there's on that's only five of them. There were far more cops uh, shooting people at Maidan that day, and these sentences are nowhere near as, as um, punitive as they could have been, and this is likely going to continue to be a thorn. Or Ukrainian society. And the actually punitive sentences were carried out against people who are not even the country anymore. They're in Russia. So nothing will happen. Yeah. And no one like this is that, that kind of sleight of hand is not going to be um, mistaken for anything else. Everyone knows that uh, everyone can clearly see that this is um, purely a, a uh, political showmanship. Um, and of course, the question remains, why are these people being protected? To such an extent, through two separate presidential administrations now, and through three plus um, prosecutor generals, uh, there's never been a good answer to why they're 
why the government has been so defensive, how why the government has dragged its feet so long on these cases. Um, and if this uh, with this conviction, it's likely that the government will want to sweep the Maidan issue finally under the carpet. And there never will be a good answer for why it's taken so long, why uh, the investigations have been hindered to such an extent. Um, even if you listen to interviews with Maidan investigators, um, they simply say that there are forces working against them. They never elaborate. It's all very uh, kind of conspiracy minded and conspiracy th- tinge the whole thing. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there, these were um, there, there were a great deal of men acting under the authority of the state that murdered um, protesters in cold blood. And until that issue is put to, is put to rest, I think Ukrainian civil society will continue to worry at it. Yeah, there have been other court cases around this that didn't amount to much, other administrative investigations. Right now, this seems to be more or less the end of the cases that can actually be pursued. Everything else seems up in the air. The deputy commander of the Berkut, who is most directly responsible for ordering a lot of the the very serious police violence uh, during those weeks. He's currently a cop in Moscow. No way to get him there. And doing the same thing that he did in Maidan against Russian protesters, by the way. Though earlier in the month, the SBU announced that it had closed its investigation into Maidan and named the government uh, officials, high government officials who were responsible for the killings and will pursue these cases somehow, though in every one of these cases, they're all in Russia. And many of them are Russian citizens. Many of them are Russian citizens at the time, but they're all Russian citizens now, I think. And we don't really expect much out of this investigation either. But the the people in this investigation are Viktor Yanukovych, of course, president at the time, the minister of internal affairs, Vitaly Zakharchenko, the head of the SBU at the time, Alexander Yakomenko, who, by the way, um, was then given a job in the FSB where he was in charge of uh, Russian oppression in Kherson City. He ran a bunch of torture chambers. So he kept doing the same thing, but more directly for the Kremlin without any kind of third party in, in between them. The head of the anti-terrorist center, Volodymyr Totsky, Totsky, Minister of Defense, Pavlo Lebedev, Commander of the Internal Troops of the Minister, Ministry of Internal Affairs, Stanislav Shulyak, and the head of the Berkut and head of the Public Security Police, Valery Koryak. So in addition to the actual murders that took place on Maidan, most of these people were also directly involved in helping Russia invade Ukraine first in 2014 and then again with the full-scale invasion most directly, of course, in the case of the former head of the SBU leading the Russian efforts in Kherson. So this is also going to be a treason case. Many of them have been living in Crimea for much of this time, where they directly um, helped Russia to organize the invasion, helped them with spying and telling them where the vulnerabilities were. Also part of the SBU's investigation was the Russian FSB officers who aided them in doing this. So in addition to these high government officials, there's also a pretty fair list of others who also took part in these activities on a lower level. We have their names, but like I said, I don't really expect anything of it. 
unless one of them gets themselves captured, which is a very, very low chance of happening unless they decide to just stay in Crimea, go to Crimea and stay there while Ukraine takes it back. That's really the only way it could happen that any of them could actually be arrested and tried for their crimes. But it's good to have the investigation, I suppose. So that was our depressing internal news, but we do have a good, uh, some happier news as well. For once, we have good news. Of course. We should probably look for more uplifting news. It does actually happen, but in the rule of news media is the depressing news gets priority, and it's a war, so a lot of bad things. But there is good things, and in this case, we have an advancement in the rights of LGBT particularly LGBT soldiers. Romeo, can you explain what happened recently? Ukraine is now um, or or now is very likely to uh, legalize same-sex partnerships. Now, this isn't uh, marriage. This is same-sex civil partnerships, which is a little bit different, but ultimately the same thing um, with the uh, both the defense and the justice ministries throwing uh, their support behind this bill. Um, which would allow two adult individuals of any gender to enter into a voluntary uh, family union. And uh, this is obviously an incredible step for LGBT equality in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has uh, long had um, issues with recognizing and uh, providing equal rights for its LGBT uh, population, but the war has kind of uh, forced this issue from a niche uh, interest to uh, a very resonant issue in society, as there are many, many, many LGBT soldiers um, defending Ukraine on the front lines, and there have been um, numerous scandals of those uh, soldiers' loved ones being unable to view the vo- uh, view the body of their loved ones, to um, inherit things, to be given um, the deceased soldiers' possessions, all because uh, they had, under Ukrainian law, no legal status in relation um, to the deceased. Uh, This bill will hopefully fix that. Um, Again, it hasn't uh, quite passed yet. It's still uh, being debated in Parliament. But with uh, the President's office, with the Justice Ministry, with the Ministry of Defense all supporting the bill, it's very unlikely that um, it's not going to be passed. So under EU uh, regulations, um, EU member states are required to recognize same-sex partnerships, um, but they're not legally required to um, provide marriage rights to LGBT individuals. So if Ukraine does uh, pass this bill and same-sex partnerships um, are uh, made legal and are um, instituted with the force of law in this country, uh, then Ukraine will be meeting that criteria, which is obviously very um, important in terms of Ukraine's EU integration ambitions. And on a kind of public policy, um, from a public policy perspective, uh, this recognition will not only, again, make, um, provide a lot of relief to the families of soldiers who have been uh, killed in combat, uh, as well as civilians, since this isn't, this doesn't just apply to uh, military personnel. It'll allow um, civilians to um, marry or enter into partnerships, however you want to call it as well. But it will also um, remove ammunition um, from a lot of Western critics of Ukraine who point to Ukraine's kind of lack of legal recognition for LGBT people as a sign of uh, Ukrainian backwardness or reactionism or whatever you want to call it. But no, that's not the case. Ukraine is moving ahead with being a modern Western state, providing uh, equal rights to all of its citizens and not just the straight ones. 
But again, this all hinges on the bill actually being passed. Despite the fact that it's very likely to be passed, it still has to, it still hasn't been voted on even in the first reading. It's still in committee. Um, in Ukraine, bills need to be voted on twice uh, in both the first and second readings um, in order to actually be adopted as law. Um, so currently, the uh, currently LGBT citizens are kind of in a holding pattern waiting for this bill to pass. Uh, but once it does, things will will be better. And um, I think this actually might make Ukraine one of the more progressive uh, European states in, in this regard, since quite a number of them still offer no or even reduced legal recognition for LGBT couples. But hopefully not Ukraine and hopefully not for long. Um, and uh, if this does go through, this will really uh, be a, a huge symbolic step forward um, for Ukraine as a whole, not only for LGBT people, but also for uh, everyone else, because a state without equal rights is a state with no right. And I think the fact that all of the relevant executive branch um, bodies, ministries, if they support it, it's rare for a bill not to be passed in those cases. Well, we'll round this episode off with a little bit of international news. This is a small update on Poland. Um, in our various coverage of Ukraine-Polish relations, we said that a lot of the troubles that Ukraine has been having with Warsaw were just up to the election, that after the election, things would probably cool off more. And it's looking like that's going to be the case, partially because that the election propaganda is no longer relevant, but also because the ruling conservative law and justice party who was initiating a lot of these tensions in order to build up its support among its uh, rural base involving you know grain deals and all that, they lost. Well, not exactly lost. They came in with the largest number of votes but not enough to have a majority, not enough to form a government. And the opposition, which had already pretty much said they would band together to form a government, uh, does have the majority needed. Because Law and Justice did win a plurality of votes, they will be given the first opportunity to form a government, um, probably with the far-right Confederatia party. So they do have a few weeks to try and put something together, but at the moment that seems quite unlikely. So once that time expires, uh, the Civic Coalition Party in connection with the Third Way Party, which is kind of Christian Democrati, and the left, um, you can guess what their ideology is, they will in all likelihood be able to actually form a coalition government to unseat law and justice, law and justice being the more right-wing conservative party that has dominated uh, Polish politics for quite a while at this point, though they never gained as much control over Poland as Fidesz, um, the ruling party in Hungary, was able to gain. They never really took full hold of the urban centers of Poland. They never really took full control over, especially the media, like what happened in Hungary. So they did not have the iron grip uh, that they would have needed to fully transform the country in their image. And because of their attempts to try and reach that point, they alienated a lot of voters. And it looks like they probably are now going to be out of power. The Civic Coalition is also pro-Ukraine, so we don't really have anything to worry about with them getting rid of Ukraine aid or anything like that. 
but a lot of their backing comes from elements of polar society that are less likely to be naturally in at least competition with Ukraine. They will not be worrying as much about the agricultural lobby. They'll not be worrying as much about some of the Polish nationalists who have historical grievances with Ukraine. So this is a good thing for Ukraine, it seems. And even in the very small chance that law and justice is able to form a government, they will likely be less um, political in how they deal with Ukraine than they have been for the last since spring or so. So either way, this is looking good. But if Civic Coalition pulls through with forming the coalition, that's even better. That is our news for this week. I hope you gained a little bit of something, at least with that good news at the end. Uh, we always like to have some good news in times of trouble, especially with our last episode there. It's all been very weighing heavily on everyone's mind. But if you'd like to know more about Ukraine and want to know what charities and such you can support, you can go to our link tree. If you would like to help out the podcast, the best thing you to do is to tell your friends and family, share us on social media, write us reviews, thumbs up, five star, anything that is equivalent on how you're listening to us. We do have a YouTube channel as well as a TikTok. We don't really know much of what we're doing with that, but keep in keep in mind in, for the future. And if you would like to support us financially, you can go to patreon.com slash Ukraine without hype. You can even join our discord, uh, receive our newsletter, etc. So we would now like to thank all of our wonderful backers. So thank you very much to Deborah Grazer. The voices in my head are from Big Pharma, David Shepard, Dawson, Giorgio, Ivana Kukratskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen Person, Anonymous, Dennis Napalm, Devi, Dimitri Litvin, Etienne, James Burke, Jan, Jenny Louise, Justin Devendorf, Kevin Alberton, Marguerite, Michael Wickman, Mike Barone, Shieldwall, Silas, T. Bart, Vivek, Adam Poppenheimer, Ada McDowell, Alex Grochmull, Anastasia, Barbara, Big Rob, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Crystal Burns, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Pavona, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jared Bradley, Jerd, Julia Lindsay, Laura De Leon, Levy Grove, Marianne, Matt Miller, Melissa Caselco, Anonymous, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, RDK, Sander Bongers, Sanjay, Scott Barry, Scott Gengris, Scott Turkuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, Subtle Knife, Thomas Sobiek, Veronica, Victoria Leontaneva, and Wandering Lens. Thank you all very much. You are what make this all possible. So until next week, Slava Ukraini. Heroim Slava. Thank you.